Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, April 10th. Before we get to today's news, as well as a monologue to send all of you fans off into another lovely weekend, have to remind you that these podcasts are made possible each and every day by our friends at Diadem Sports, and you know my pitch for Diadem by now. They are helping tennis players across the globe elevate their games by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet, but let me try and personalize this situation for you. We've all, as tennis players, been in a position where we just know the racket we're using isn't working anymore. I'm not, you know, I was 12, 13 years old, and I was using a racket. It's a letter and then factor. That's all I'll say about what it was. I don't want to name any other brand. Um, But it just wasn't for me. I wasn't good enough. It wasn't bringing my best results. I had to make a switch. And fortunately for me, I found the exact racket that I needed in my life. And nowadays, you know, I'm no longer even close to good enough to use that racket. So I needed to switch things up. I needed to go to uh, a new brand. And I'm fortunate that I found Diadem Sports. And they've got rackets. They've got strings for all types of players, regardless of your playing styles. Five different options string-wise. Of course, racket frame-wise. They've got the Elevate 98, a beautiful shade of aqua blue, as well as the Nova 100 in that jet black painted color. Uh, They've also got the Premier Tennis Balls. They've got drawstring bags. They've got incredible swag as well. And you can find all of it on their website, diademsports.com. Use our promo code CR50. Get 50% off your order. You can get all of your tennis needs satisfied in one place. Of course, that is so helpful. And you can get 50% off as well. So diademsports.com. Use that promo code code CR50. Thank you again to Diadem for all their support. The least we can do is ask that you guys go and support them if possible. All right, let's get to Friday's news, and it's a bit gloomy because you're starting to hear more and more discussion in the professional tennis world about what the financial impact is going to be. And of course, it goes without saying, but I will continue to say it on these podcasts, you know, health, safety, number one. Regardless of when we get tennis back, if we get tennis back, let's make sure everyone's safe, everyone's healthy, and of course, we are all feeling the financial burden, the financial pains that are caused by the coronavirus pandemic. This is a tennis podcast, though, and so, of course, I do want to discuss the ramifications in the tennis world about this pandemic because they're real and they're certainly going to be long-lasting as well. And, you know, our friends at Tennis.com, we are a Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. Uh, our friend Kamakshi Tandon, uh, came, uh, yeah, she came out with uh, a piece interviewing the Montreal event director talking about two months to decide hardcourt swings fate and how Tennis Canada's earnings stem largely from its tournaments in Montreal and Toronto and why cancellation would have a significant impact on future development for Tennis Canada. And, I mean... Andrescu, FAA, 
Fernandez, Shapovalov. Those are the young, you know, you can keep going down for college tennis fans. Ben Seguin, obviously another Canadian player. Josh Peck on that roster as well, Canadian. You can go on and on and on. There are so many, of course, Gabby Dabrowski, Milos Raonic. I'm not going to mention every Canadian tennis player. Needless to say, it's an emerging uh, tennis power in the global tennis dynamics uh, but they may lose their biggest events of the year. And I have heard, you know, through the grapevines that, and look, it's no secret, the U.S. Open, its success is, it helps fund a lot of what the USTA does with its organization throughout the world. That is how commercially successful the U.S. Open is as an event. And you can only imagine the ramifications if the U.S. Open cancels, what that whirlwind will have on the USTA and its organizations and all it wants to do. But these are real. I mean, cancellation versus postponement is a serious decision. Not every tournament can afford to pay like Wimbledon can for pandemic insurance. So many tournaments are going to take a hit, and we've talked about this before. We've talked about this with so many guests, most recently Paul Anacone on the Cracked Interviews podcast, but of course Steve Weissman, Ben Rothenberg, Mark Lucero, John Wertheim, and others as well. Christiane, of course, on our various podcast platforms. But there are going to be tournaments that don't come back. That's just a reality. And will new ones form in their place in the calendar? Hopefully, will as minimum uh, of a loss be, you know, of course that's what we're rooting for. But it's just inevitable at this point that some tournaments just aren't going to be able to survive a year off. And it's it's not going to be fun uh, to see, the, again, some of the after effects. I think we all have to brace for that. And in fact, the ITF today came out with a statement on the economic challenges resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. From their press release, quote, the ITF is working hard to continue to oversee and maintain the global infrastructure of our sport during this unprecedented time. Uh, Again, I'm going to paraphrase, but we also recognize that many are facing significant professional and personal challenges caused by the current suspension of play. They go on to say, as a nonprofit organization, 90% of the ITF's revenues revenue is reinvested into programs that drive growth and ensure the sustainability of our sport globally via our 210 member nations. The funding is invested where it is needed most at the national level in the form of financial support, regulatory and professional services, event resources, education training programs for players, coaches, and umpires. They're committing to taking a fair and equal approach to the multiple stakeholders affected by the challenge, ensuring the organization as a whole can continue to operate effectively. However, you know, they're they're constantly reviewing and their operations and activity to minimize the effect. Okay, that's all of the preface. They go on to say they've postponed more than 900 tournaments across all of the circuits and remain uncertain when play can resume, you know, postponing events and prioritizing safety is the appropriate response. Of course, it has resulted in a number of complex changes, including a significant loss in income. In order to safeguard jobs and protect the long-term health of our organization and our sport, the ITF is implementing a series of measures effective today, which include savings on projects, a job protection scheme for employees, and the utilization of funds from ITF reserves. The protection scheme includes a furlough for approximately half of the ITF staff. The remaining staff will continue to work to sustain business critical services and essential platforms with a 10% reduction in salary, Senior leadership team has taken a 20% reduction in salary. The president has voluntarily taken a 30% decrease for the years. In addition to these, uh, in addition to these methods, they're in discussions with other stakeholders to look into various options to support nations and players during these times, and will provide more information when they have completed the process. From ITF President Dave Haggerty, the situation we are facing represents a fundamental challenge to our organization and our sport. 
Our purpose is to ensure the long-term growth and sustainability of our sport in collaboration with our 210 member nations, which is why we are making difficult decisions in the short term so that we can continue to deliver tennis for future generations across the globe. That's a harrowing statement. You know, that means, and look, again, this gets back to what we just talked about with Tennis Canada, but it's quite obvious the tennis world is going to take a hit. And we can talk about unionization. We can talk about universal basic income. We can talk about the need for collective bargaining. We can talk about the various interests competing with one another throughout the tennis world. But given the realities of the current structure, money is a problem. If these events aren't going on, if matches aren't being played, if revenue's not being driven, and of course there's an effect not just on tennis as a structure, but think about at the local level, coaches who can't go out to their clubs and give lessons to kids, and you know the entire infrastructure of tennis, like everything else, is significantly hurt right now. And you know at the again the professional level, this is staff and pay cuts. This is that's what all of that language meant that they're paying people less and they're reducing the amount of people they're playing in order to survive. And again, why that's so concerning? If we don't have if they don't have money to pay themselves, where is the money to pay players? Where is the money to help set up you know funds for players or universal basic income to, uh, I guess, prevent this sort of thing or if this thing sort of happens in the future to sort of minimize the damage and learn from this experience. And of course, it's still so early to be saying, hey, there should be big takeaways already. And why haven't we responded quicker? And, you know, again, there's a lot of different reasons behind all of that and responses. But I don't know where the money's going to come from. And that's concerning. And again, the more events that don't just get postponed but get canceled, uh, the more difficult it's going to be to find revenue. And let's get through this safe and healthy, uh, but there's no denying tennis won't feel the pain. And it's not just the professional level I mentioned, you know, at the personal level, but also the college level. And of course, Colette Lewis, the great. Colette Lewis, the queen, as I like to call her, of tennis media, uh, the first person I grew up reading in her uh, Tennis Kalamazoo blog, of course, talking about uh, an article written by the University of Arkansas professor Steve Dittmore for Athletic Director U, which explores which sports will be hurt the most by this coronavirus. And he makes the case that, of course, tennis uh, is a sport that a lot of uh, athletic departments may consider giving up and you know Colette sort of paraphrases and summarizes his argument talking about uh, you know among these sports of course Denson pays attention to uh, division one tennis because it is not producing athletes who go on to represent the United States in the summer Olympics uh, it has but not so in big numbers so he proposes a radical solution which is, uh, again, and I'm going to read it to you, what if athletic directors decide it is no longer their responsibility to aid the U.S. Olympics team by sponsoring Olympic sports, such as field hockey, gymnastics, wrestling, and water polo? We could certainly see more sports suffer the same fate as Old Dominion's wrestling program, which brings me back to tennis. If there was ever a college sport which could be eliminated, it is tennis. He talks about the high cost per student athlete for tennis. Uh, he talks about international versus domestic uh scholarships and he says consider this the usta does not need universities to help train future olympians the rare olympic sport that does need college athletics further the vast majority of college tennis athletes and power five schools come from outside the united states scholarships are not going to american high school seniors again i don't think that's fair uh i don't think the usta you know the usta certainly enjoys having college tennis and their investment in the sport speaks to that but he's right 
They don't need it, and that's certainly a thought. And, you know, I don't – and Colette really does a good job picking apart this professor's argument, so go read her piece. Again, tenniskalamazoo.blogspot.com. Should tennis be among first NCAA D1 sports cut post-pandemic? It's a really excellent piece, as she always does. And I don't want to steal from her, but I will say, as always, I agree with her. I don't think you find a single athletic director who would agree with his framing that you know preparing athletes for the Olympic Games is or should be the goal of university athletic departments. Um, you know, they I, I don't think that's the NCAA's purpose ever. Look at how much money they're making for college football, for college basketball. Though you know, football doesn't even have an Olympic sport. Uh, so I you know I think there's a lot of other reasons beyond that. Um, and we don't have to get into them because I think they're fairly obvious. Colette does an excellent job looking into them. Now, I do think programs will be cut because the revenue is not going to be there, not because they're not preparing Olympic athletes, and I think that's a discussion we'll continue to have over the next few months. Uh, but again, it, these financial windfalls are affecting all levels of our sport, and I do think it's important to keep that in mind. Let's switch gears a little bit now. We're heading down home stretch, and then we'll get to the monologue very quickly. Not that that wasn't enough, a nice rant, but uh, again, I think I talked about this yesterday. Le Quipe France uh, released their 20 most influential people in the game of tennis. Let's go through some of them because I think they're fascinating. Just in the top 10, Federer 1, Serena 2, Djokovic 3, Nadal 4. You want to qu- you know quibble with the order of them, that's fine. Those are the top four. I think that's indisputable. Craig Tilley of Tennis Australia at number five is fascinating for a bunch of reasons. What he does behind the scenes, hosting events and ensuring that certain events go on in certain places. He's a power broker. Uh, There's no denying that. Billie Jean King, of course. Seven just collectively agents, and I talked a little bit about appearance fees yesterday. I'm not going to get into it until I learn more about the topic, and I'm learning more and more uh, as I continue to, you know, research the subject, but... Agents drive appearance fees, and appearance fees drive a lot of the the financial inequality, we'll say, that we see on tour. I'm going to leave that at there for now. But what's interesting, they have all of those people, and then ATP President 9, WTA President 10, uh, Gaudenzi, and Steve Simon. Uh, That's a little bit funny to me. It does speak to, again— you want to know why unionization hasn't happened? Well, ask player council members Federer, Djokovic, and Dahl if they want that to happen, if they want their – because they have the, the largest financial stakes. And I'm not trying to criticize them. They earn every dollar they play. And, you know, given the way the system is built, uh, they have achieved the most. They deserve to be the most recognized. They deserve to, you know, of course have – perhaps slightly larger say than some of the other players because they drive so much of the interest. They drive so much of the marketing. They just drive the economic engine of tennis. Um, But you want to ask them to give up money for the rest of the players? Ask anyone. If I said, hey, can you give up a hundred bucks so that you know all of us can have uh, more than a hundred? Though it's actually, hey, will you give up tens of millions of dollars uh, in your personal career? By the way, they're all tennis players, and yes, because they all happen to be smart investors, because they all happen to have uh, plenty of endorsements at this point. Uh, you know, they have this sort of financial comfort where they could say, yeah, you know, it makes sense. But ask any professional athlete if they want to have money taken away from them while they're trying to, you know live out their career? And the answer would be no. No one wants to be told, hey, you're going to make less money even though you're going to accomplish the same as generations before you. They're going to be like, what? 
that that doesn't seem right. That's not how things should work. And I'm not saying what I, you know, again, I just think that's the reality of it. Uh, so that was an interesting thing, but it speaks to their influence that, of course, I think those players are all the top four indisputably. Um, Andy Murray, not to, you know, you talk about big fours, um, Serena being in that conversation, Andy not sort of makes sense accomplishment-wise, but Andy Murray, of course, a celebrity on and off the court, one of the most, you know, uh, cultural icons of our sport over the past couple of years. He made a donation to the charity of Cambridgeshire Hospital, having recently undergone a scare there. Uh, he is giving. I don't think they reported the money, but I know it is a significant uh, sum of money, so shout out to them. Shout out to the Murrays. Westoff, can I get an applause from you? Of course. Shout out to all of those players who again. I know I just went on a rant of why they wouldn't want to have money taken away from them, but so many of them have been so generous and so just charitable during this time, the exact sort of spirit we hope would bring the tennis community together in a moment like this. So shout out to them. Shout out also to Ashley Leahy, who is the number one player in D1 women's tennis for the majority of this season, certain to be an All-American. She announced today she'll be back for the 2020-2021 season. Um, which is awesome as a tennis fan. You want the best player. As a college tennis fan, it's great to see the best players still playing that sport. Ashley Leahy's a stud. I mean, one of the best college tennis players I certainly can remember seeing in the women's game. She's accomplished it all. Uh, But it's great to see her coming back because I know her Pepperdine team did not get off to the start they expected, certainly at least at the national indoors, although they were rounding into form. And, you know, it's her now. It's Estela Perez-Somariba coming back as well, which is going to be a really interesting, 2021 season. Once the Tar Heels make their move, Alexa Graham, McKenna Jones, Sarah Davitella, uh, then the real dominoes start to fall because there are a lot of talented teams in the women's D1 game right now. But that's all the news. Let's get to today's rant. And today's rant is fairly similar to the one I mentioned yesterday. I've been just going on these research binges because we all have time on our hands. If you're not doing research now, if you're not getting to that one project now, you're probably never going to do it. Uh, and I'm trying to get to as many of them as possible. Perhaps not as many as super producer Daniel Westoff would like, but that's a conversation for another time. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Uh, yesterday, the theme was, to me, the best four, uh, the four best five-year stretches. Sorry for those numbers. Hey, great shot all at once. But again, the four best five-year stretches in at least recent ATP Tour history, and I talked about it on tennis Twitter. Of course, we posted the podcast yesterday as well, and I got some really cool responses from it now in terms of the order. Most people are jockeying. They do agree. Djokovic, Federer, number one and two, uh, pretty definitively. Just they disagree on the order in terms of the best five-year primes. A lot of Federer defenders. I finally get the vitriol of the Federer fan base, which is something I've been looking forward to facing my entire uh, tennis, I suppose, media career. And people defend Fed. They Some people are just firm. They He won 12 titles in a five-year stretch. That's more than any player in history. Therefore, that's the best stretch in tennis history. And if that's for you, I don't know what to tell you. 
If you value slams above all else, and that's justifiable, they are the marquee events of the season. Now, given how long the tennis season is, I would continue to argue Masters events, year-end finals, various accolades along the way, undefeated streaks. Those should all play a factor as well, win percentage, how many events you're playing, how frequently are you making the finals. But some people just like to boil it down to Grand Slam titles, and if that's your thing, I can't argue against Federer winning 12. It's the same people who, and I'm not saying these are apples to apples, but who will just say Michael Jordan won six championships, therefore he's the greatest of all time. Well, Bill Russell won more than that, so if championships is your litmus test, he's the best basketball player of all time, right? Uh, So anyways, I think there's nuance to all of these debates, all of these discussions, but one, I actually, so moment of honesty, two people kept coming up in the responses I received, Stefan Edberg, Stretch, and Yvonne Lendels, and I'm going to be honest, I looked up Edberg, it's a really good five-year stretch, it's not in the category of Sampras, Nadal, uh, Sampras, Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer, I haven't gotten to Agassi yet, saving that for next week, but one guy I did get to today that I want to talk about real quick was Yvonne Lendl. And if, you know, Yvonne Lendl's prime came throughout the 80s, certainly that's when he won all of his Grand Slams, I believe. Nope, he got one in 1990, but he won seven of his eight Grand Slams in the 80s. He made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Grand Slam finals on top of those seven titles during that stretch of time as well. He was a multiple-time, five-time year-end final champion during that stretch. He also won multiple world champ uh with the you know the world championship tennis circuit championships WCT you got to keep in mind back in the 80s it wasn't just one tour right there was grand prix events there was WCT events there were just all of these various different things as well as the grand slams the structures were not the same in the 80s and that's important to keep in mind because in this instance I didn't cheat I didn't give him the Nadal benefit of the doubt where I took out 12 and kept in uh 13 in terms of the seasons I used for Nadal's 5 year prime because Lendl's still that good from 1985 to 1989, and let's go through those stats now. He averaged a 70-win, 7-loss season uh, over that five-year stretch. That's a 91% winning percentage. Guess what, folks? That's better than Roger Federer was. Federer was at 90.7. Lendl at 9.10. That's a little bit better, barely, but it's the best winning streak over a five-year stretch of any player in history. He's also, again, as I mentioned, higher than Djokovic. You look at the other Lendl stats. Only played 15 events per season, and again, that's hurt dramatically by his 88 season, the story of which I'll get to at the end of this. But during this time, Lendl, 8.2 titles per 15 events, 11 finals. So by percentage, he's winning over 50% of the events he plays, 54.7 of the events. Again, you compare that to Djokovic. Djokovic was winning 51.9%, so that's a little bit worse. Federer was winning 54.8%, so again, they're 0.1 difference there. They're neck and neck. Lendl, 73.3% uh, of the events he plays, he's making the finals. Again, by percentage, that's better than Djokovic was in his five-year prime. That's better than freaking Federer was in his five-year prime. That's just outstanding stuff. And again, top 10 wins hurt by that 88 season, but he still has 69 top 10 wins, 13.8 per year. Uh, that's more than Edberg had. That's more... I believe, than than Sampras had as well. Sampras was at 13.2, Lendl 13.8. I believe uh, both Nadal, 
uh, and Federer were slightly over that mark, uh, but still, he's in that upper echelon. Yeah, Federer 15.2, Nadal 16.4, but Lendl's in the conversation. Now, of course, where some of you will ding him is the major titles. Lendl, six major titles during this stretch compared to the nine of Federer, uh, excuse me, nine in the five-year primes of Djokovic, Nadal, Sampras. That's worse. It's less, you know, it's half of the 12 that Federer won, but it is worth making uh, the point that Lendl, won three straight U.S. Open titles during the stretch, 85-87, to 87, which was a part of eight straight U.S. Open finals. He's the only guy in history to make eight straight finals at the U.S. Open. I don't remember if Rafa's made eight straight at the French. He's obviously made more than eight, but eight straight finals is ridiculous at a major for anyone now. In this time, he also won two straight French titles from 86-87. He also made five additional finals, two at Wimbledon, one at the French Open, those two more in 88 and 89 at the U.S. Open. Five semifinals, one quarterfinal, and two fourth rounds in his 19 majors during this five-year prime. So, you know, uh, Djokovic, you know, Federer had the third-round loss in the 04 French Open and then went on to 18 straight semifinals or better. That's ridiculous. In a 20-slam stretch, Djokovic didn't lose before the quarterfinal round. That's ridiculous. Uh, but for Lendl, and uh, that 1986 Australian Open got moved to a different portion of the year. Um, but for Lendl, you know, he... Uh, that's it's the same as Djokovic almost fourth round. I'm sorry that he the fourth round is one round before the quarterfinal. Obviously they or he, and he made two of them, but still, you know that's ridiculous. That's just an exceptional stretch of time. Uh, you know, it's just really freaking good. I I don't know what to tell you. And you know you just look at his efficiency. And again, he was playing World Championship Tour events as well, but he only played 22 Masters events total over this five-year stretch, you know, 22 out of a possible 45 in theory. Not great, Bob. But in those 22 events, he won 15 Masters titles and made three other finals. So he of the 22 Masters events he played, he won eight or he made the final of 18 of them, went 15 and 3 in those Masters titles. Now, what might you say? Well, you can get it done at the Masters level, but if you can't get it done at the Slam level, does it really matter? Maybe it's great that Lendl coached Murray, two guys who came up short all the time. And you know what I have to say to you? That's the. I just don't like that take at all. That there's no nuance behind that take. If he's playing 22 total Masters events and winning 15 of them, he is one of, if not the best player on tour. And guess what? He won three straight year-end titles from 85 to 87. He ended number one in the world four times during this stretch and was number two during that 88 season. So he was the best player in tennis over this five-year stretch. And you want to hear what his 88 season looked like? Let's get to that now. He still goes 41-8 and eight during that season. By the way, that 84% number was the only number during this five-year stretch that was under a 90% win percentage in matches. In his season, he plays 10 events, makes finals in half of them, wins titles in three of them. Again, a down year by his standard. Only played three Masters events. Guess what? He won all of them. Played the year on finals, made the finals. Finals, two semifinals and a quarterfinal at the slam. And oh yeah, here's what else was going on. He had arthroscopic shoulder surgery to remove loose cartilage. He had a stress fracture in his right 
foot. He had a pulled fat pec, and he had a strained thigh muscle. So that's four injuries in the 1980s. They didn't have modern medicine. There was no Dr. James Andrews who you could just call up and say, hey, I need some shoulder surgery, arthroscopic edition. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's no problem. You'll be back in two to four weeks. You know, this is 1980s surgery. This is, hold on, i got to use my dial up to make sure your monitor doesn't go out. And I know that's not how it actually worked. But the point is a surgery then is more influential than a surgery now. And he underwent four of them in 88, and he still finished the year number two. He still made a Grand Slam final. And, oh, yeah, he was being sued by his former management firm after walking and opened up his own sports management firm in the same season. Now, I haven't gotten to Agassi yet, but we all know his ups and downs from the tennis world. I can't – and, you know, we, everyone has personal stuff off the court that influenced seasons now and then. But imagine going through that sort of event – and going 41-8. and eight. And I guess what the, this gets me back to, and this is really the, the big argument, I suppose, that uh, I wanted to make today, is compare Sampras and Lendl's primes. Because, you know, again, by average record, Lendl, 70.4-7, and 9-10 uh, win percentage. Sampras, 70.8, 13.4, win percentage. So, edge, Lendl. Uh, Lendl. Eight titles, eight, eight titles, 11 finals, and 15 events. That's more titles and more finals than Sampras, who did it in 19 events. So, again, Edge Lendl. Top 10 wins, 66 for Sampras, 13.2, 69 for Lendl, 13.8. Again, Edge Lendl. Masters titles, 8 in 33 for Pete Sampras, 15 in 22 for Yvonne Lendl. Edge, Yvonne Lendl. Three year-end titles for Sampras, three year-end titles for Lendl. So finally, they draw even in something. You know, Sampras ended every year number one during his five-year prime. Uh, Lendl, four out of five, number one. And, of course, the big category. So keep all that in mind. Every other stat beyond the majors, either tied or significantly, you know, or going the way of Lendl, I'll say. So the only one you get to, you know, major titles. Lendl had six. Sampras had nine, but let's do total major finals. Total major finals, Lendl had 11, Sampras had 10. Sampras had 12 semifinals or better, Lendl had 16 semifinals or better. Uh, I just... (sighs) Who had the better career? Pete Sampras, right? 14 major titles... That 2 U.S. Open, he's a, one of the game's greatest champions. He, people don't say that about Yvonne Lendl. They say he's one of their greatest competitors. He says, oh, he just came up short at Wimbledon oh so many times. And, oh, that devastating you know final that he lost in 86 and to lose again in the final in 87. And even that 88 semifinal loss he took. And, you know, you can go on and on and on. And, you know, what about all the finals he lost? You know, he lost his first five, or lost his first four major finals. He went three and five in U.S. Open finals. He went, you know, two and two. All this record. You want to say all that? That's fine. But on paper, every other statistic beyond the slam count points towards Yvonne Lendl having the better prime than Pete Sampras. Points to Yvonne Lendl week in, week out, just being the more consistent, more difficult to defeat, you know, because he didn't struggle like Pete did on the clay, and uh, Pete's struggles on clay are one of the most overborne things. Uh, you know, over, overrated certainly topics. You look at his results. Yeah, from '97 to 2002, he didn't make it past the third round, and in fact, he only got there once. But you know, during the meat of his career, '92 to '94, he makes the quarterfinals each year. '96, he makes the semifinals. 
you know, Pete was fun. You look at some of the things he did. He won Rome. He made uh, semifinals in Rome, quarterfinals in Rome, semifinals in Hamburg. He wasn't horrible on the surface. That's, I just think, overblown. You know, in his career, let's look at it. Compared to everything else, yeah, it's his lowest win percentage, but he was 90 and 54 on the surface. He was fine. Lendl was so good across every surface. You just, again, quickly to look at it, just... He was he was a winner. He's a career eighty two percent win percentage on tour. You look for Sampras. He's a career seventy seven percent. I mean, Sampras is one of the game's greatest champions, but so is Yvonne Lendl. And I know everyone considers him right up there. You know that third tier, maybe not the big three, but you know maybe a little bit below Laver and Sampras, but in that third tier. But in his prime. He's a tier two. Now, I don't think he's quite at the level of Federer and Djokovic because their longevity plus everything they did at the slams is just better. But take out the slams and Yvonne Lendl and Pete Sam- You know, Lendl had the better career than Sampras outside of the slams. Now, of course, you can't do that because slams are such a big portion of the season. But Lendl belongs in the discussion. And if you're asking me whose five-year prime would Alex, you know, I as Alex Gruskin personally take, I would think about it. I would think about it very hard. I would say, Mom, do you need to see me win? Is six majors enough for you? Would you still love me if I'm winning all these other events? You'd say, Alex, of course I always love you, especially during Passover. (sighs) It's a tough decision. I don't know. But the, the fact that it's taking this long to make the decision points to how close the cases are between the two of them. And more importantly, I'm, I, I gave you enough of a take. I think you can tell which way I am leaning. But I want to know what you think. Am I overrating Yvonne Lendl? Certainly, you know, in terms of his career accomplishments, he, he belongs in the discussion in the top 10 male players of most accomplished male players of the open era. Um, but his five-year prime might be one of the five best in open era history, and I don't think he is ever treated with that sort of reference. And maybe I'm wrong. Again, I was born in 1995. His career was essentially over uh, before I was even born. Yeah, his last full season, 1994. My last full year of not being alive, also 1994. So maybe this is just a me being young thing, but it has been great during this time period, going back, rediscovering how great some of these former champions were. And Yvonne Lendl belongs in the discussion. Top 10, certainly most accomplished. I think his career peak is in the top five discussion. You could tell me you have it over Pete Sampras in terms of their primes, uh, their five-year primes, and I would not laugh at you. I would say that's a very good argument, but boy, are some people going to get mad at you on Twitter. And, uh, you know, that's that's the 2020s for you, right? That's half the fun. But, of course, that's the argument. I do also want to say shout out to uh, Robert Sullivan, uh, who used to write at Sports Illustrated, found a fantastic article in their vault, Master of the Wounded. Boris Becker prevailed over a gimpy Masters field, and Yvonne Lendl showed he's back to help me do some of the research for that 1988 season. And, you know, I always want to give a shout out to those people. But again, you know, so that's my monologue for the day. It was very five-year prime oriented this week. Maybe I'll change up the topic I explore next week. Maybe we'll keep going with this. I'll keep looking at different players, five-year primes, keep making arguments, keep making cases. Again, I kind of looked at Edberg and I'm going to compare Edberg to Murray at some point. I'm going to compare Edberg to Wawrinka. I'm going to compare Edberg to guys like Agassi and Courier. I went on a rant about Courier. Courier, three-year prime can compete with everyone. Five years, 
you know, still not quite at this level, I would say. Definitely a cut below Lendl. Um, but, man, the Murray five-year, yeah, expect that next week. Let's be honest. Uh, it's just too much fun doing this research. And, of course, the reason I'm able to do this research, thanks to our friends at Diet Tip Sports, go to their website, diademsports.com. Use the promo code CR50, 50% off your order. If you've missed any of our content from this week, go to our website, crackrackets.com. Five days up, five days down of Mini Break Podcast this week. Uh, a lot of research done. Again, we, we took it uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, I was, I'm up to some fun stuff. I like to share it with you listeners. So uh, if you've missed any of our Mini Break guests over the past couple of weeks, people like Steve Weissman, Mark Lucero, Carlos Silva, the World Team Tennis CEO, uh, Andy Katz, of course, as plugged in as, into the NCAA as anyone out there. Of course, our very own Vicki Duvall uh, also now appearing on Mini breaks are doing her own Wednesday show as well as our friends of course at uh, tennis my tennis HQ carousel coming on this week for another technique Tuesday go check all of those out I think all of the pods at this point hold up well uh, you know all of these topics I think will last and of course GSP wise CR classics our look at some of the best matches in tennis history if you haven't checked that out go check it out as a YouTube series because we're up to cool things on our YouTube channel as well that uh, with the highlights worked in super producer Daniel Westoff killing it as he always does overserved our look at all of the comedy our new video series that, uh, you know, again, looks at all the comedy on a day-by-day basis in Tennis Twitter. Episode 5 coming out next Monday. Cracked interviews-wise, what did I miss? Christian and Paul Anacone and Dennis Kudla, Bethany Maddox stands. At this point, we've had them all, and you should go listen because each of those conversations get better and better, and it's just, you know, it, it, it's it, for trying to make the most out of this, we think you will enjoy all of these interviews. Get your mind, get you distracted away from all of the stresses that we're all feeling in our day-to-day lives. The reason I can do these podcasts stress-free, though, as I mentioned, because of the job our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westhoff, do each and every day, it's a of an enemy job as it always is and you know they continue to kill it so shout out to them as well but with that being said for our super producers max fligner and daniel westoff for our friends at diadem sports and aero barn by the way with aero bar that tennis specific energy bar use the promo code uh, cracked 30 get 30 percent off your order so you can have an energy bar whenever you are in a quick fix uh and from all uh, for i think i said super producers max fligner daniel westoff but i'll throw them in there again and for all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host Alex Gruskin and you know what we say folks that's the break. Have a safe and healthy weekend. We'll see you all next week folks. Take care.